Good morning and welcome to UK Column. We're going to uh, do a very interesting interview today with a gentleman called David Adelman. And uh, David is the man behind the People's Lawyer website and initiative, I think is probably the right word. So David, I'm going to say welcome back to the UK Column studio because of course you came to visit us a few days ago, well a couple of weeks ago now. Yes, thank you very much, Brian. Yeah, I did. Um, I met the, the gang, as it were. Uh, I knew um, Joe, uh, Josie, um, and um, I had, that's the only one I'd met. But, but I've been following UK Column for a few years, um, probably even developed kind of a, an addiction to it, to be honest, because there's so little truth around. There's so few crumbs of truth to, uh, to feed on. Um, and uh, so it's a real pleasure and a delight to be here, Brian. Thank you. Okay, well, th thank you for that support. I'll just um, come back to you and you're, you're talking about watching the UK column. I actually find now that I'm watching a number of what I regard as good, reliable channels um, being run by other people. The Duran is one of them. Um, but uh, I also find that it's great to actually be able to sit down on a regular basis and hear what people are saying and I'm somebody that only listens to mainstream media or watches the BBC when I feel I need to in order to keep track of what they're doing. Otherwise, I'm picking up all of my uh, news and understanding of the world from uh, alternative media channels, and I feel much better for doing it. But I just, I just wanted to you know, point that out to the audience. The UK column is here. We're doing what we do. We're really grateful for all the support. Um, but of course, we also um, benefit from now quite a wide range of people who are out and about doing things to make a difference. And of course, really, David, you're one of these, those people because you've come from a very interesting background. You're Cambridge trained. You qualified as a solicitor. You've taught English in Spain. Um, and then you've had an input into education. So... Yeah, welcome. Let's uh, tell the audience a bit about yourself. Well, you've summed up um, in a very few words, yes, uh, many decades of life experience. I would say that when I was being trained as a lawyer, it wasn't, my heart wasn't in it. I was always biding my time, waiting for something better to happen. So it was actually very easy to leave the legal profession because I'd never had a, an intention to stay for very long anyway. Then I found myself, as you say, uh, educating out there in Spain, learning Spanish. So I was very much a student of their language and culture. And you reach a point where you have to do something to survive. And obviously, in that environment, teaching English as a foreign language was, uh, was the most obvious thing to do. It's all, I was, it's all I could do because my Spanish just wasn't good enough to do anything else, apart from maybe lift parcels or deliver them. And... Um, which is what I'd been doing in London after I quit the legal profession. And that's when I started to learn, I really started to wake up fully when I looked at their education system and found it wanting. And then when I came back to this country, I found the same problem in this country. And I just got to thinking, well, this, this is a global problem. This is an international issue that we're sending people to learn things and they're learning nothing. But what they are doing is providing the teacher, in inverted commas, an opportunity to earn a living and pay their bills. And I just thought, this isn't good enough. This is not education. And um, 
So I was in the schooling system in this country teaching a card game called Bridge, which is a lifelong hobby and passion. And I was eventually granted funding to go around schools nationally. Uh, maybe it was mainly England. Yeah, I didn't go to Wales or Scotland. It was England. And that experience uh, consolidated my idea that there's something very, very wrong. And summing up a lot of years into a, a few short sentences, I was defunded eventually because what I was doing was proving very useful and valuable to the children. And the system can't really cope with that because it needs children to receive fodder rather than nutrition for their brains. And, um, and so I was defunded. And the resentment that, um, that that created when I was defunded led me to write a report. That report went to Parliament and Parliament um, didn't do anything with that with with that report but the, the idea was that i was i was endeavoring to persuade people that the schooling that the what i was employed to do which was improve um thinking skills really they needed to broaden that um remit and make it social and emotional skills as well but they were refusing to do that so long story short i was um defunded and taken out of the schooling system that resentment, as well as leading me to write a report, led me to write an ebook. The ebook eventually became a physical paperback called School No Place for Children. And in 2019, I was the keynote speaker at um, a symposium called The Alternative, is the Glastonbury Alternative Symposium. That went very well. And I was just planning to do a nationwide tour as, in effect, the people's educator. Um, talking about the, the inadequacies of the schooling model. When COVID hit in 2020, early 2020, as we know, and people said to me, David, you need to broaden your remit. It's not just about schooling. People are frightened of this, of this, um, of the, of what's going on, whether they're frightened of the actual virus is another matter, but they're frightened of the um, totalitarian implications and they, they need to know their rights. And I had been researching into, um, into freedom and lawful rights for many years because um, I felt that I'd been victimized by the system. So I was kind of ready to give people a taste of freedom and universal rights. So out I went onto the streets of Manchester <clears throat> and um, eventually that led me to, um, to take that uh, wider and on one day on the, on the promenade at Morecambe in, it was November, 2020, I announced myself to the crowd. Some of them already knew me because they'd seen some of the videos that I was putting out. And I'd been putting them out just as David, but um, I found myself saying to the crowd, hello, um, some of you may know me, some of you may not, but my name is, and I got stuck there. And I thought, well, do they need to know who, what my name is? And I was looking at the police men and women looking on thinking, well, if I give them a name, then uh, I'm, I'm making it easier for them to arrest me. So I just said, uh, my name is, my name is my, oh, I'm the people's lawyer. And it just came to me, landed on my head, um, gave it to the crowd and the name stuck. And then within six months, there was a website. The talks went further afield and I had been giving a course online. So the course, rather than being David's course in privacy and universal law, it became the people's lawyer privacy and universal rights course and the talks continue and as i always say i'm on tour till we win the war so here i am 
still on tour, never-ending tour. The course continues, the tour continues, and uh, I call COVID the gift that keeps on giving because it gave me the uh, capacity, it gave me the impetus to do more research, to find out things that I thought I knew but I didn't, and to find out things that I didn't know that I didn't even know. And, um, and here I am, and so that's, that's me summed up. When did you do your, your training in the law and how did you find that training what what did you actually learn what were you taught that's an interesting question brian um well i did a law degree at cambridge from some 1977 to, to 1980 and only only a very small part of it inspired me to actually want to study it it was i was just going through the motions i was very very young i was a teenager and um very, very young, um, I'd hopped on this corporate bandwagon, this corporate ladder up towards the stars of, uh, st you know, it's, it, they, they dangle these carrots in front of you and they don't explain what it actually means. They just tell you that, 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 that or they imply, they don't actually tell you, they imply that some kind of glamorous future awaits you if you just toe the line and keep passing exams and keep doing the training. So I then went off to London to do the solicitor's final exams, which is absolute garbage. It's just literally, you, you learn things by rote, you don't question anything. And eventually I ended up back in Manchester, which is my hometown, doing the same course, because I was doing it in London and having to pay for it, and I had no money, so it made sense to go back to Manchester to do it free of charge. So that's the solicitor's finals. That and then um, enables you to take on training to be employed by a firm of solicitors for two years to do what's known as articles, where basically you're just a dog's body. The first few weeks, you're just brewing up and just um, answering the phone and doing menial tasks. Then they start to trust you with more, uh, more complicated tasks, writing letters, interviewing clients. And again, I'm still going through the motions. I'm in, uh, I'm in a practice in Paddington where the emphasis is on what you could call high street law, which is divorce, crime, personal injury, a um, bit of employment stuff. It's everyday legal aid work. Um, and as opposed to city, where a lot of my university pals had gone to the city where they just became corporate lawyers, uh, working for the man, working for the beast. Whereas I, I was always drawn to work with real people in real time. So you could, you could already see back in the day, so we're in the early 80s, back in the day, uh, a younger version of the people's lawyer was taking shape. I had no idea that that was happening. All I knew was, was that there were, there were the odd cases that were of interest to me. The, the ones that were of most interest were the ones where I felt like the system was, was coming down on a man or woman uh, too harshly. Um, I remember a... Um, a a street worker, a, a lady of the street came in one day and she'd been charged with some very uh, heavy crime, something like accessory to armed robbery or something because her pimp uh, was a pretty nasty character. And I just thought, this, this is not right. She's just, she's just a prostitute and she's being charged with a serious crime and she's not involved in any way. So I got stuck into that case and, um, and my, my boss was really impressed with the statement that we cobbled together because my heart was in it. What, what I've found in life is that whatever you do in life, if your heart's in it, 
you will excel and you will you will influence uh, those around you. And if your heart's not in it, if you're just doing it to pay the bills, then then all hell can break loose, either externally or internally. Uh, now, at that particular firm in Paddington, um, being a very young man and being given more and more responsibility, let's say there was a bit of an accident. An accident happened, uh, diaries weren't filled in that should have been filled in, and to cut a very long story short, um, I um, committed a heinous internal administrative crime and um, basically someone was arrested that shouldn't have been arrested um, because I didn't diarise the fact that they should have gone to the police to report their whereabouts. And anyway, it was all, all to do with my um, incompetence. But being a trainee, ultimately it was my boss that was responsible and, uh, and that, that led me into trouble and I had to transfer to another firm of solicitors uh, where uh, a totally different environment. They were property lawyers. They had no interest in uh, no interest whatsoever in people. So I had um, and and within literally days of being transferred to that firm, I realised how much I was a people person. And uh, and boredom's um, set in. I mean, I would go in at nine thirty, and by nine thirty-three, I was already counting the minutes till five thirty. Uh, and how I survived that year, I'll never know. I think it was just dogged determination to come away with the qualification, which is the solicitor, solicitor of the Supreme Court. That kept me going. <clears throat> and I immediately quit because I just thought this, uh, the, the, there's something wrong here. It, work shouldn't be this boring. That was the second firm or stressful. That was the first firm. It should be you know, it should be more enjoyable. It should be more, um, I, I was very poorly paid. Trainee lawyers back in the day were extremely poorly paid. You know, I was, um, I, I think the, the cleaning staff were paid way more than I was. That's how badly paid I was. Thank you for, for that about the job itself. It, it's, uh, it's fascinating. But what I want to ask is about what you were taught at law school. And I'm deliberately going to throw wow. this one in. You're taught the law. What are you taught about the law? Are you taught about uh, how the law system works? Are you taught about statutes? Are you talk about, were you taught about common law? What was the actual substance of what you were taught? We, we are talking about the late 70s and we were given back, and it's changed now, I do believe. We were taught equity, contract law, uh, constitutional law, and that's the first year were taught that, well, first year and a half, maybe. Um, but it's very much, uh, it's very, it's tokenist. It's very, it's not, you don't go into any depth. And you are led to believe that, um, that law, in the modern sense, is uh, statute law. So you are led to believe that the, the, the law that is applicable and relevant to people's everyday lives is uh, parliamentary legislative rules, basically. Um, that's my current language. I mean, we were told that it was law. So law is legislation, which is uh, a patent untruth. And common law, equity, uh, contract are all very nice, but they are uh, a sideshow for the, for, the, for the main course, which is law and the key to law is how judges uh, interpret the law so it's very much about the intention of parliament as interpreted by 
senior judges. This is this is the picture that it's painted. Uh, that is painted. That's that's the bread and butter of the legal system. And um, so we're not really uh, we're not really given a balanced view. And that's back in the 1970s, early 80s. So you right. can imagine um, how warped it is now. And what about juries? Were you taught about juries and what power juries had and did not have? Uh, absolutely not. Not that I can recall. So when I came across the constitutional common lawyers, I know you've um, you've had some interviews with one or two of them recently, um, telling me about the decree, the, the power of the jury to um, make decrees by annulment. That came as a complete shock to me when I first came across it, which is was several years ago, I would say, um, because it chimed. It, it, I was brought up, I was, I was dragged up to believe that the, that the ultimate expression of law is um, parliament as interpreted by the judge. So, uh, and looked through the prism of 2023, we can now see how warped that is because what we're realizing is that the, 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 the true sovereign is the people and therefore the expression of that is the jury. So none of that, None of that in, in my studies, no, not back, not back then and certainly not now. Okay, thank you for that. I'll just add a little anecdotal story, which I think I shared with you when, when we met last time, but it's quite a powerful little story. And that is a lady that I know who's, who's also tra trained at law herself. I think she went to um, um, Kent University to study law. And she said to me on one occasion that they had a certain lecturer that kept asking the assembled class um, whether they'd seen the matrix. And she said she didn't pay too much attention to this the first couple of times he talked about it, but he would come in for a lecture and say, well, who, who's watched the matrix? And maybe a few hands went up. But eventually it got to the point where she was the only person who clearly had not seen the matrix. And um, he sort of honed in on her and said, you know, you really should, you really should watch it. And she said to him, why? And he gave this sort of wry smile and said, well, maybe it's because, um, well, you're here learning law. Maybe it's because things aren't quite as they seem. Now, she went on to watch the uh, the film The Matrix, but of course what stayed in her head was this very strange interaction with the lecturer. But later on in that course she attempted to ask questions about common law and the status of common law, and it was made pretty clear to her pretty strongly that these were not welcome questions, and that if she persisted maybe this was not going to be good for her course results. Now, I, I, I think I did mention that little story to you, but if you've forgotten, no, not to worry. But um, for me, this was just a little uh, anecdotal story which makes you wonder what the objective of the teaching in the law really is. But am I being too conspiratorial in uh, putting that one across? I very much doubt it. I don't think there's a limit to our sense of uh, conspiracy these days because if we can imagine it, then it's happening. That's, that's the way I look at things these days. And in order, to, if we step into our right brain um, and, and use imagination, then we can 
within reason, because some people can become a little bit, uh, they can go from being concerned to being paranoid. So we have to tread carefully. So avoiding paranoia, we can, we can easily see and joining the dots, which is what people like you and I do, um, Brian, is we can see uh, how um, generations now are being indoctrinated into just one way of thinking. And that's what the system needs. It can't accommodate alternative views yeah. because it, it's, it's just, it's, it's too strict. It's too rigid. Um, and that's just being, that's being kind to it. So it's, there's a, there's an inbuilt rigidity that, that uh, is threatened by any um, dissent or any alternative perspective. It just can't cope with it. This is a really excellent little segue into my next question, really, which is that you, you produced the book School, um, No Place for, sorry, what is it? School, No Place for Children. Um, that's yeah. a pretty powerful title. Tell us about that. Why is school no place for children? Well, school is no place for children because ultimately um, it's a prison and there is no need to imprison boys and girls. Um, because they haven't committed a crime. So why should they be doing time when they haven't committed a crime? The schools are now built, and they have been for some time, built by the same companies that build prisons. They look like prisons from the outside, and they feel like prisons from the inside. You're in a classroom, that, so that's a cell within the prison. Even if you can see through the window, you will just see uh, an eight- or nine-foot piece of fencing, which increasingly now is solid, so the boys and girls cannot even see beyond the fencing. Uh, and it all starts, as I say in my current round of talks, it all starts when the mum or dad, with the best intention in the world, leave the boy or girl at an early age, sometimes four, five, six or seven, in a strange environment and disappear into, uh, into the mist, into the horizon. Now, the, the mum or dad may think that they're just dropping off their boy or girl for the first time at school, and that's how they would define it. But for the boy or girl, it's abandonment. And some boys or girls never recover from that initial abandonment when they're dropped off in a strange, hostile environment uh, without any explanation or with a very, very paltry or inadequate explanation. So that's the they get off to a bad start, most boys or girls, and then they find that the accent is on compliance and discipline, being quiet, not having a say, only speaking when you're spoken to, sitting rigidly. Uh, in, in assemblies now, they do military-style discipline where you have, the boys and girls have to sit with their feet straight and their uh, arms crossed, eyes ahead. They, um, it's just pure boot camp military-style training and and... Don't even get me started on the course content, uh, because as we know, the content is, has become increasingly devoid of all life, of all truth, of all meaning. And, and that's, that's what I was saying five, six, seven years ago. And I still say it now because I, don't, I want to resist the temptation of the low-hanging fruit of the hypersexualization and hyperpoliticization of, of children. That's just too easy to, uh, to target. So I do want to stress, and I do stress, that, the, that schooling is actually designed to be 
dehumanizing, and it was designed that way 150 years ago. Uh, what's happening in schools now is nothing new. It's just um, it's a degradation. It's another level of degradation which has been going on for many, many decades. Thank, thank you for that, David. I, I always get school of fish when the word school is used, that, that we take these individual children uh, that should be swimming around everywhere and they're gathered together in the school and then they're led off in one direction to learn things and more, more importantly to believe things which is as you just said are not true or we could say certainly don't fit the established pattern of morality for a lot of people and of course with the um, uh, sexualization of children that you were talking about it's now got to the ultimate that we're destroying children's own identity and that they're not not even going to know whether they're a little girl or a little boy but you mentioned card games and bridge and I'm just fascinated as to how um, how that became an educational tool my mind goes back to my time in the military in the navy many many years ago but bridge was quite a a fa fashionable social game certainly certainly within the navy at that time um, i tried it a couple of times but i never really got into it but i did appreciate the um the ability to memorize cards and and to um, direct play and I think the correct term is to finesse out individual cards but for some reason it didn't particularly grab me but I do know that of course um, in, in many in, <coughs> excuse me on many occasions um, if you were playing bridge with the right people this was going to be something that enhanced your career so I probably missed out on that one uh, but tell us what was the connection between the card game bridge and providing something beneficial for children inside the education system? Well, initially I was sent in by the English Bridge Union, which is the governing body for, for this country for bridge, because they, they wanted, they believe that the mass that you do in bridge, and it, there isn't very much mass in bridge, but the mass that you do in bridge would give children context in which to do mass because there are there are what people don't realize who never go into a classroom is that there are many, many children who are protesting within the system against the system by refusing to answer questions or by saying that they don't know, miss. Sorry, miss, I don't know that. They actually do know, but they, they are pretending that they don't. Um, one, one I've got a couple of interesting anecdotes that are, are relevant to this issue, uh, Brian. One was... Um, when I was in a school, having given um, a session in Minibridge, which is a simplified version that children as young as six or seven or eight can handle, it's, it takes the complexities out of the game. So we'd had a good session and we're having lunch and the head teacher turns to me and says, okay, David, I can see the benefits of this game and I'll go through them in a minute in a very brief format. And he said, he said to me, but what do I tell parents who um, tell me uh, or ask me, quiz me, um, head teacher, why are your kids playing cards in, in a school class? What do I tell them? And I said to him, well, what you could tell them is that they're having a real life experience. They're engaging with themselves and with others. They're learning to win and lose, learning to, um, to get into conflict, fall in, fall out, 
they are using their cognitive skills, they are um, improving their memory and data retention, they are building their confidence, because if you master any skill, that makes you feel better about yourself. The, the list of, of benefits from a card game, as opposed to just reading from a book, is actually ludicrous. There's, there's virtually no benefit from studying from a book, apart from um, practicing reading, which you can do at home. But the benefits of a social game, and that's what Bridge is, it's a game for two against two. The benefits of a dynamic social game really know no limits, a bit like our uh, imagination for conspiratorial theories. It no, no, knows no limits. And that's what, that joining the dots here, that's what I found when I took it to schools. Because as being, being a lifelong bridge player, I took bridge for granted. I, I didn't see its benefits until I saw them in the classroom. And that's what made me ask the funders to shift the goalposts from maths and thinking skills to social and emotional skills. Because in this country, we have SEAL, which is S-E-A-L, social and emotional aspects of learning. And some schools, as soon as they saw Minibridge, they adopted it into their SEAL program. In America, it's called CELL, social, uh, social aspects, no, social and emotional learning. And so school, some schools somewhere do appreciate the value of social and emotional maturity. And some schools somewhere do see that using a card game would be one brilliant way, easy way, because all you need is a pack of cards, one, uh, a brilliant way of uh, enabling or facilitating boys and girls on that path. So the, the answer, although your question was short, the answer is very long. In fact, the full answer is in the book, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, giving children an opportunity to be themselves, which is wh when you're playing bridge, one of the, the things that you are being is yourself. And although some people are frightened of bridge and they say they're frightened of bridge because of the complexity, I beg to differ. I personally believe that people are frightened of bridge because at the bridge table, there is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. If you're a nasty person, it will show up at the bridge table. You can't pretend at the bridge table. And that's why I believe a lot of people are frightened of bridge, not because of its complexity, because I have a system that, takes the complexity out. I use a system based on Minibridge that takes all the complexity out. So if people are, and if people are frightened of it, then I believe that it's uh, not because of its complexity. Some people may be, but a lot of people is because there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, and you are seen raw in the flesh around the bridge table. You were running this program and it was very successful. Um, where did the where did the pushback come from that ultimately meant that you were stopped from doing this? Um, was this the Department of Education or did you have problems at one particular school? It came from everywhere, Brian, I would say. It's really, I could invert the question and say, where was Bridge happily accepted? And then I would find that easier to answer. Where was Bridge happily accepted? Just in one or two enlightened schools, uh, so there's a school in Falmouth, for one, whose precise name I can't recall. There was a school in Leeds. There was... Um, so I would say it's because of the dangerousness of a card game in the school classroom. It, it's not easy to, to answer the original question, but I will, I will endeavour to answer it. So where, where did it get into difficulty? It got into difficulty 
uh, at grassroots level when teachers didn't fully comprehend what I was doing and what and why I was there. But the very, very first teacher that I went uh, um, to assist in her class, as soon as she realized that I was there for benevolent, constructive purposes, uh, she turned her back on me and started to mark books rather than engage with what I was doing. <clears throat> and then you had the odd deputy head or head. When, when the teacher did comprehend what I was doing, then the head teacher would say, right, that's enough of that. Now let's get back to the, the curriculum work. So you had heads and deputies or heads of departments that, whose main remit was to keep on task with the curriculum and with the curriculum timings, rather than give boys and girls an engaging uh, workout. What, one, one particular day, there was a boy, uh, we'd had an entire day of mini bridge, and a mum turned up and the boy, the son said to the mum, mum, we've been doing, we, we've, we've, we've been working all day and we haven't done a single bit of maths. In fact, he'd been doing maths all day, but because it was fun, it didn't register in his brain. And then the higher-ups, when the reports went up to the English Bridge Union and they then reported to Parliament, the higher-ups, again, you can't pinpoint where the problem is, but you know that somewhere higher up, someone is sensing danger. The, the, the red alert has gone off. Uh-oh, we've allowed a Trojan horse in. Someone's in the system that um, is ultimately going to compromise it. From its, uh, from its main track, which is to indoctrinate children and, and keep them on task. And uh, so I, ca I can't point the finger at anyone in particular. All I can say is that the, the higher-ups made sure that uh, as soon as they realized what I was actually doing, rather than what I was programmed to do, uh, I was out. All this happens, you've got all this experience, and then you decide to, to go out talking to people. Um, giving them the benefit of your knowledge. But when I look on your website, it's very clear that the website's gone a step further because you're trying to assist people in dealing with a, a number of different problem areas. So if I just glance to my right here, I've, I've got it on screen. So um, you've, got a, uh, you've got a section called Know Your Rights Introductory, um, Parents Beware, Disclosure 2021, statutory rejection notice tutorial, keep your business open, uh, combat tyranny, reality check, home education alert. So you've, you've set up to um, get out and about, to educate people, to alert them, to warn them, but ultimately to try and help them, I, I think from, if I've interpreted the website correctly, getting them to help themselves. Tell us about the package of things that you're promoting on the website and, and in your own words, what are you now trying to do for people? Well, I think you've summed it up very well when you said getting people, helping people to help themselves, I would say, Brian. Helping people to help themselves. It's um, because one man cannot be the proverbial lawyer um, to the people. Um, the, the man can educate the people and... Uh, and and get them to a position where they can start to assert or at least start to consider asserting their own sovereignty. And <clears throat> this is where the schooling system and what I'm doing now clash head on. So what I'm providing is an antidote to the schooling system, whereby the schooling system says, do as you're told, 
and take everything on the chin. And don't ask too many questions, pay your bills, be a good boy, be a good girl. Uh, and what I'm saying is that that's not necessarily uh, the best and most constructive way to build a brighter future. What we need to know is who we are, what our rights are, and how to assert them. And so I've got various videos, uh, you've just read some of them out, so that people who are financially strapped can train themselves up simply watching the free-to-air videos. If people want to invest more time and um, fin finance into being uh, coached and mentored, then there is a course, which is the People's Lawyer Privacy and Universal Rights course. And what I've done very recently is I've split the course into passive and active. So the passive course is just a home study pack where they can uh, learn all they need to know and off they go and put it into practice and I don't get involved. And then they can pay an extra where um, I get involved with live Q&As. So they can feedback their questions. And basically, we're inverting the schooling process whereby all the questions on the Q&As come from the student as opposed to the questions coming from the teacher. So the Q&As come from the student. So all the I'm joining as many dots as I can, which is inverting the education process, the schooling process, so that the questioner is the student, inverting the law, uh, the education in law, which suggests that the average man or woman has no power and has to kowtow to authority, which is parliament and the judicial, the judiciary and the executive and the legislature, legislature and uh, teaching them that, in fact, they are, just like the series The Prisoner with Patrick McGowan, who spent the entire series in the 90s, now I am showing my age, in the 1960s, showing, uh, asking the question, who is number one? Well, we are number one, but we've been trained to believe that, that that's the last position that we either have or deserve to have. But once you realize that you are number one, everything changes. So that's the current model. Um, it's, it's going to be that way now until further notice, until we have enough numbers, sufficient numbers, empowered to do the civil, lawful, peaceful, civil disobedience or non-compliance if it's a, at an individual level, to uh, disrupt the system and to give the system, to put the, uh, the spanner in the spokes to make sure that the system doesn't uh, roll us over, which it could do if we're not empowered or standing on our rights. This is a really good point, isn't it? Understanding that you, you do have power. Um, I've been saying recently to a variety of audiences, whether, whether it's via the UK Column News or where we've come into contact with people with live meetings. We were up in Scotland a couple of weeks ago um, but I'm encouraging people to do things um, because for many people it is a very difficult, um, it can be quite frightening in the beginning. You know that you should be doing something, but it's taking that first step. In fact, Moira Malcolm, although she, her video tube is Moira Dundee, and she's talking about what happened when she made a personal protest uh, during lockdown and that subsequently led to her being in court, uh, being arrested by the police and then being in court. And she talked about how, how scary that actually was and how she really had to work her way through it and gain strength in order to go on and do things. So 
teaching people that when you do have the courage to stand up and do things, you can actually make a huge impact. And of course, when a lot of people stand up together to do something, that can have absolutely huge impact. And the establishment's probably very frightened of it. But the key is each individual's got to do it. So I, I fully back what you are doing here. Now, one thing that's come into, into my mind, just thinking about the law and the situation that we're in in 20, 2023, is that I had an email this morning pointing out, unfortunately, I've, I've, the lady's name's dropped out of my head. I think, I think she's Isabel. But um, the lady who was praying outside the abortion clinic and got arrested recently, I understand that charge was dropped. But the email this morning said to me, she's been arrested again. And if that is true, it appears to be on exactly the same basis that she's standing in the street uh, in vicinity of a closed abortion clinic and she's praying and the police are accosting her on the basis that she's praying. We have reached a really um, serious point, haven't we? where the law is now interested in what thoughts are inside our heads, not in the sense of mens rea, a, a crime has been committed, did you have the intent in your head? No, we're talking about somebody praying, but that has become so frightening to the system that the police come in and ultimately somebody could be could appear in court. I've, I'm throwing this one at you, David, but what, what's your thoughts on that particular case? And would you have any advice for people who, who get arrested for praying? I, first of all, I don't give advice. Um, even though I'm a trained uh, legal expert, I don't give advice. I just give people information, the information that they don't have access to in the ordinary course of events. Now, I'm going to refer you to a biblical quote, which is what I quote in some of my um, promotional material. It's Hosea, chapter four, chapter four, verse six. Quote, my children shall perish for lack of knowledge. And what people are struggling with is their level of knowledge. So taking that example that you've just given me, that that lady may have reasons to answer questions when she's asked questions by a figure of authority. But what I would insist that she knows before she answers a question is that she is under no obligation to answer a question. So the, the vital point that we need to get across, those people like myself who know this, is that we are never under an obligation to do or say anything that we haven't previously subscribed to so we have we have to be under contract to uh, we have to have entered into an obligation so if she's standing there minding her own business well mentally minding someone else's business but that's just thought processes if she's standing there and uh, an officer approaches her and asks her what are you doing the correct response from a lawful point of view from a lawfully empowered point of view is Excuse me, but am I obliged to answer that question? That's the most respectful answer. Now, if you're on the streets of, of Liverpool, Newcastle, Manchester, there may, there may be less respectful answers like, who are you? 
So we can we can use the vernacular that suits our environment, but essentially the point is that we are never under obligation to answer questions. Now, going back to schooling, what did you do for 12 to 15 years that has now that is now impinging on your life? You were asked a question and you were punished for not answering them. So we're now running a program of self-punishment. Like, I must answer this question because if I don't answer this question, then the, there, are, there will be consequences. So what we have to get through to people is that those consequences, like Plato's cave, are just shadows in our mind, demons in our head that, that came from, a school, from our schooling, possibly also dysfunctional parenting. It's not just schooling, but it is predominantly schooling. And the difference is that schooling has the agenda that sets you up to be the, the um, fall guy for the figure of authority later on in life. And those are, that, that's me joining the dots. If you go to school, that's why I, I, I now have this vital message to people. Please don't send your boys and girls to school. If you want them to be empowered, that's the last place that you should be sending them. So that, that lady really, she may well still answer the question next time as long as she's making a conscious choice that for various reasons she may want to assert her faith or whatever, but as long as she knows that she doesn't have to answer that question and when she doesn't answer that question, that officer has no evidence on which to act and therefore they would be, that officer would be committing a crime, false arrest, false imprisonment and in breach of their oath, if they've even taken an oath, some of them don't even take oaths these days, um, and they would not have a reason, a, a lawful excuse, a justifiable reason to arrest because they need um, a reason to arrest someone. And that would ultimately threaten their employment because there's something called Code G of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984. If they don't have a, if they don't have a valid reason to... Um, to arrest someone, then they can get into trouble. You've made the comment you have. I take your point, absolutely. You're not offering advice, so you, you are just commenting on things. Uh, but into, into my head came another little incident, and this was many years ago, when I went into a police station with a lady who was battling the child protection system, and um, uh, two pretty uh, unpleasant police officers, as they like to call themselves, uh, wanted to ask her questions. I'd acted as Mackenzie friend for her uh, in court. And I said that was the position I was in. So if they were going to ask her questions, I was going to stay with her. And to my surprise, um, I was allowed to stay with her. And I had about 30 seconds time where I could talk to her privately. And um, she was keen to do a uh, a no comment interview and that's subsequently what happened so uh, the police started their questioning and she said no comment next question no comment no comment no comment well eventually one of the policemen said are you replying no comment because Mr Gerrish is here and she looked at me and I looked at her I didn't say a word and she said no comment and that continued on through the interview. Now, I was later to understand that um, that no comment interview caused the police huge problems because, of course, by the end of the interview, they were no wiser. They had no more information to put forward in the court 
than they did at the start. So I don't know what your reaction to that is. Um, it seemed to me that the no comment interview prevented the police building evidence against this particular lady. Absolutely. What, what we're doing unwittingly is, um, in, in effect, we are, we're running a guilt and shame program. I know I, I keep harping on about schooling, but that's the guilt and shame program. I know some religions step in and, and, and intensify that. Some parents also do the same. But the guilt and shame program means that we don't feel that we have the right to say, to just, to hold our counsel, to keep our counsel. And, and I'm just going to throw in something here that um, is potentially very interesting, something that I'm working on. It's giving boys and girls in the schooling system a card, which I call the school protection card, which they can use to turn things around in the classroom because um, recent events have suggested that Although I'm saying, saying to parents, pull their boys and girls out of, the, out of school, some of them can't. They could be single parents and they have to work. So there's a remedy for boys and girls to practice the art of defending their territory using the question or using silence. So if we learn to answer a question with a question or learn the power and the art of silence, we are going to build a generation of people that will naturally stand up to authority. And because we can't expect people who've been good little boys and girls all their lives, all of a sudden to turn around and stop paying this and stop doing that. Uh, it's a bit too much to expect because they go into crisis. But wh what we can do is teach the younger ones who have got no baggage. All they know is that being, that boy, being bullied in the classroom and they want some kind of remedy and we have it for them now so i don't know if you want to explore that in more depth or we could do that in an, uh, another on another occasion but but to go back to your other your point that yes the the authority figure if it's a uh, the police they need you to give them enough rope so that they you can they can hang you with it and in the classroom the teacher needs you to try and explain why you're late rather than just say, excuse me, miss, why are you asking me why I'm late? Can't you see that I am late? So is that all? Do you need to know any more than that? It's everything's on a need to know basis, miss. Yeah, I'm late. That's it. So we need a bit more appropriate insolence is what I'm advocating. Appropriate, respectful insolence and insubordination. They'll treat it as insubordination. But we, we need more appropriately, judiciously timed insubordination because otherwise authority, as I'm repeating myself, now authority just gets ideas above its station and we're not putting authority back in its place, which is we're not leveling the playing field. And that's a dereliction of our duty to ourselves and to future generations. OK, David, we, we see, uh, well, in my mind, we see an increasingly onerous, suppressive, malicious authority growing in this country. Well, it's, it, it's growing worldwide because we can see the same thing happening in other countries. But if we focus on UK, it's obvious to me that we, we are getting a more and more draconian system of authority establishing itself. What do you think what do you think that authority is 
you, you've been fighting authority now for a, a number of years and you've been doing it in your particular areas and your <coughs> style, but what do, you, what do you think we're really up against? Well, that's a very deep question, Brian. I, would, um, I, would, I, I will give that an answer a go, but I'll, I'll move towards it tentatively by saying that it's not so much what the, the enemy is or what, what it is, it's what it means. And I think if we address what it means, I think we will probably answer, answer the original question of what it is. So what does it mean? Well, it mean, what, what it means is that we're being challenged and tested to prove who we really are, which is the sons and daughters of God. And if, if people are uncomfortable with the term God, then sons and daughters of life itself, the prime creative source, it doesn't really matter what term you use, but we are the um, ultimate offspring. We have the divine spark running through us and that gives us the moral code and it gives us the sense of right and wrong. And what we are up against is the challenge to that sense of right and wrong. It's the attempt to annihilate that spark so that whatever it is, and we can argue till the cows come home about what it is, um, that, that it, for some reason, sees itself as separate from the almighty spark, the almighty source of all things, and it has an almighty chip on its shoulder, uh, resentment and envy. So you could say envy is the root of all evil. And envy, what the thing about envy is that if it can't have something, then nobody has it. So if it, can't, if it sees itself as being bereft of divinity, then all the divine creations must be rubbed out, and then it will feel a little bit better about itself. So... What am I talking about? Well, am I talking about uh, some kind of artificial being, some kind of beast machine? Um, who knows? This is, we just enter the realm, <clears throat> excuse me, of conjecture. But uh, ultimately, it's certainly using machines to rub out humanity. That's, that's what we can say. Algorithms rather than inspiration and intuition. So, uh, that, so we can we can see certain manifestations of this, <clears throat> excuse me, ultimate evil. But to pinpoint it is is a much more onerous task. It's much more difficult. We can we all we can do is rise to the challenge and operate from the heart, and the heart is so much more powerful than any algorithm that it whatever it is doesn't stand a chance. So it's just a question of. Uh, enough of us operating from the heart, seeing, seeing with our hearts, feeling with our hearts, and moving forward on that basis. Now, I know that sounds a little bit vague. Uh, it's a huge question you've asked me, and, and we could probably spend an entire program just answering that one question. Well, uh, but I hope given some kind of clarity. David, I think that was a really <laughs> excellent answer. Uh, yes, it was a difficult question, uh, but I was very interested to know in your mind if when 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 you're dealing with these things that are clearly wrong within the legal system or schools um, whether as you try and tackle authority you get the impression there's something a bit deeper and nastier there and i i think from your answer you do but i accept that we would have to put some time aside to get into that one in a bit more depth 
we are just about on the hour, David. So I'm going to say what a good what a good point point to end on, um, because that that critical question and your answer, I think, were excellent. Um, would you like to tell the audience a little bit about your website, where they can find you? We will make sure that it goes up at the end of the video uh, so that the people will be able to see the website. But do you want to say anything to the audience about if they go to their, your website, what they should be looking for? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, it's thepeopleslawyeruk.com and it's um, most of what's on that. Well, actually, everything that's on the website is um, free to absorb, to study, to download, to watch because my main remit is to educate and inform. With that education and information, we can stand up for ourselves. And when we stand up for ourselves, we can make a, we can make a real difference. The, the, the beast system, the beast machine, um, doesn't like resistance. So we need to be that resistance. And my website is one of the websites out there that will help people resist and uh, identify who they really are and what they can really do. They can also come to live talks. And my focus is very much more on my live talks um, because that's where I can meet people and they can feel for my energy, feel the authenticity with which I'm speaking rather than just read it. The, the things that I say uh, on a video or on, on paper may sound authentic, but you have to meet me to really gauge my authenticity. So that's the, that's the uh, litmus test. Come and meet me, come and listen to me speak and see for yourself whether you feel that I'm on the right path and I'm leading you towards the right path. And it's, that's the only way really. Um, I'm on tour on the South Coast uh, soon. So that would be um, Hampshire, Sussex, Hampshire, Dorset. Then in April, the North, that's March. And then in April going North, Northwest, Northeast, Scotland, Birmingham, <clears throat> and um, I think Lincolnshire as well. Then in May, uh, your neck of the woods, Brian, which is Southwest again. So, and I'll be on tour constantly. Um, it's free admittance. Admission is free. Some organizers are a bit nervous about free admission and they, they put in a, uh, they fix a donation. They say suggested donation. I don't like to do that. It's you donate after the event as you feel because some people may feel that I've given them um, something that they can't work with, in which case, why should they pay? But some people feel that I have given them something valuable and they put in a huge donation. So I leave it to people to feel for their appropriate donation. David, one, one of the things that uh, came into my mind a few seconds ago while you were talking was TPUC. And if that doesn't mean anything to any, anybody, I'll try the People's United Collective. And really this came about, you're the people's lawyer. And uh, this morning when I, I saw that uh, um, title on your website, the People's United Collective came into my mind. And of course that initiative was started by a gentleman called John Harris. Uh, and John, we remember affectionately here at the UK column because in the very, very early days for us, and the initial days for John Harris, we helped him give a talk at Totnes where he was talking about particularly matters to do with the constitution and common law. 
Have you come across TPUC at all? I have, and it's, it's going back now to about 2012, 2013, when I ran a meeting myself and somebody mentioned the, the documentary. Well, they mentioned two things, the word straw man and the documentary Nature of the Cage. And I went home and I looked up Nature of the Cage and straw man, and all roads led to John Harris. Uh, he, he featured very prominently in Nature of the Cage, and I have to say, that already, although I was already awakening to the corruption and the and the 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 way the system is warped against us, I'd already awakened to that because of my experiences uh, in, with the bridge authorities and as a lawyer. The uh, the work that John Harris was doing was so clearly um, groundbreaking that it just opened my eyes to a, another level. He accelerated my own journey, my own progress. I owe um, an, an unending and eternal debt to him. His talks were uh, profound, humorous. They ticked all the, the right boxes. And um, and if we can continue in that vein, bless him, if we can continue in the vein that John Harris, uh, he lit the way forward, he lit the, uh, the, the touch paper. If we can continue forward using John as as an inspiration and some of us already are but if we can maybe come together and do that in a more coordinated way i'm sure that he will smile down on us from wherever he is now and go yes it was all worthwhile the work that i did meaning the work that he did was worthwhile and he he will just rest more easily wherever he is that's the way i see it lovely thank 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 you very much for that and i'll also just drop in uh, john's uh, wife Heather because I know Heather did a, a lot of research um, which John was able to use in his talk so I think it's fair to give Heather a little mention as well but amazing isn't it that uh, John is another person who did a lot of work in those early days it did make an impact at the time but now with a, a, a lot of water under the bridge we can see that his efforts actually made some quite big changes in a number of areas David, it's it's been really excellent uh, talking to you. Uh, we could we could do a lot more, so maybe we'll have to look for another slot in the future. Uh, but it's been really great to talk and to hear your experiences, and to understand what's motivated you to get up and challenge the system. So thank you very much for joining us.